Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. In this episode, you'll hear the winding tale of early Christian history in the Americas with a special focus on the 13 colonies. Right from the start, the Americas were full of Christian diversity, including Catholicism, the Church of England, Puritans, Baptists, and Quakers. In this lecture, you'll see how this diversity led to an unprecedented level of religious tolerance and flourishing. Other significant issues in this period include the horrors of the slave trade and the treatment of Native Americans, as well as the impressive success of the Great Awakening under the preaching of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. This is Lecture 12 of a History of Christianity class called 500, from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen. Here now is Podcast 128, Colonials and Methodists. Number 12, Colonials and Methodists. So for right now, I wanted to share a couple of books with you uh, that uh, you may find useful if you're interested in this uh, subject of American Christianity especially. This one here is by Mark Knoll. It's called The History of Christianity in the United States and Canada. And it's a pretty thick book on just American and Canadian Christianity. On the other side here, we have David Berceau's book, In God We Don't Trust. Uh, and so that's uh, a, an examination of to what degree early Americans trusted in God and to what degree they trusted in other things like guns, rum, other sorts of uh, non ungodly uh, behaviors. Although he does have a very good chapter in there on Pennsylvania. He, he loves Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. So it's not, it's not all negative. But uh, if you're interested in those two, that will give you a lot of information about this subject. To start off, we have three main topics. The founding of the colonies, then I want to talk about the Methodists and the Great Awakening, and thirdly, the Revolution and its consequences. And I'm not able to cover all the political uh, involvements and uh, situations. I'm just focusing on how this affected Christianity mostly. So. Uh, for example, even though we are in New York, I'm not going to tell the story of New York and Henry Hudson and the Dutch putting a fort right out by what later became Albany and calling uh, that city at the bottom of the Hudson New Amsterdam and then renaming it to New York once the English took it from them. I'm not going to tell you anything about that, okay? Because that's not relevant. Uh, what I want to talk about is the story of Christianity in America in the early years. And so this is this uh, map of the Spanish claims in America. North and South America, right? You see on the west coast uh, of California and throughout Mexico and the uh, Central America and to parts of South America. The biggest place in South America is Brazil, and that's a Portuguese colony. Uh, but these are the Spanish claims, and uh, this, is, this is all under the heading Catholicism in the Americas. So Catholicism has a very strong grip in the Americas, both North and South America, in Central America uh, early on because of the, the, Span the Spanish were the first ones to discover these things. Columbus flew under the Spanish flag or sailed under the Spanish flag. He didn't fly. Um, and uh, so Spain was, was big into it early on. And they also had control over Florida. 
on the East Coast. Uh, it was a Spanish territory. French claims included, it's, it's this, whole, this whole region in the middle. It's uh, what we would call the Louisiana, the territory of Louisiana, not the state of Louisiana. It's much bigger than the state of Louisiana. And you can see they kind of came up the, the, the river, Mississippi River, and they, they went off into the tributaries, and that's the lands they claimed. And then up here in the northeast, you have Quebec. And so again, this is another major part of the Americas that is Catholic. In 1634, the Catholics founded the colony called Maryland. And that's why it's called Maryland, because it's uh, a Catholic colony. So of the 13 on the East Coast that we'll be mostly focusing on, Maryland is the one that was uh, uh, founded by uh, Catholics, English-speaking Catholics. And in 1649, they had the Act Concerning Religion, where they had a declaration that said, you're not allowed to blaspheme or insult religion but we will tolerate you if you believe in Jesus Christ. So it was a fairly tolerant, actually a very tolerant thing to do at the time. And it was a refuge, Maryland, for English Catholics who were a persecuted minority at this time and um, those who didn't fit in with the Puritans or the Anglicans, uh, such as, for example, Presbyterians from Scotland ended up coming to Maryland. In 1607, Virginia is founded as the first English colony. Wait, I thought, I thought the Plymouth was the first. Well, actually, no, it wasn't. It was Virginia was the first English colony, 1607, by the Virginia Company. It was a, a group of individuals that formed a company as an investment venture. And the uh, big export from Virginia ended up being tobacco. I'll return to that in a few minutes. But they brought the Church of England to the New World. So this is the Anglican belief. They brought it to the New World. And candidates for ordination had to travel back to London. So it didn't spread all that well. I mean, if you need another priest or another bishop, where are you going to get it? Well, you've got to get somebody to come all the way from England to back to America. And so there are no bishops in the colonies until the year 1784. Then we come to New England in 1620 when Plymouth is settled. I'm trying to think what this... Oh, this is the Virginia Company. What is this? Their symbol or whatever, seal. Okay. Plymouth. In 1620, a group of Brownists came here, separatists. They had left England and gone to Holland to find religious freedom. They were able to find religious freedom in Holland, but they could not, they were mostly farmers and they, they, had, they had to work jobs in the cities and their kids were all learning Dutch and they were, they were like, uh, let's go to the new world. Let's find something over there. Virginia is already happening. And they actually tried to go to Virginia, but miscalculated and ended up in Mass, what we call today Massachusetts and started the Plymouth Colony. They were not called pilgrims. That's a much later designation for them. In the retelling of the story, they get called pilgrims. They would just call themselves Christians, or um, they probably didn't call themselves Brownists either. Brownists were people that were, were following the ideas of Robert Brown, who had a, a separatist mentality in England, where rather than reforming the Church of England, we're going to break away and form our own group and do it the right way. 
And so they came to Plymouth in 1620. In 1630, some Puritans came, and they established the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Now, if you remember from last time, there was all this chaos in England during this time, where you have governments being, again, overthrown in a revolution, right? The glorious revolution, as they call it, and Oliver Cromwell and all that. And so when the Puritans discovered that they failed to achieve what they wanted, they decide, some of them at least, to come to Massachusetts, well, found Massachusetts, Bay Colony, put their Puritan ideals into practice there, where England can't stop them or won't stop them. And so they flee persecution from Archbishop Laud, and they end up in 1630 founding the Massachusetts Bay Colony. In 1648, there's the Cambridge Reform, or Cambridge Platform, excuse me, uh, which is a Westminster-style confession with a congregational polity. And it unified the separatists and the Puritans, the Massachusetts Bay people and the Plymouth people together under one understanding of religion. Just to be clear, Puritans have a, uh, a belief that's reformed, which is the, the teachings of John Calvin. And, the, and so this is this group that comes to New England. Uh, I already mentioned the Catholics had gone to Maryland. The Church of England people had gone to Virginia. So these are three major sects of Christianity in different places here. They did not believe in re religious freedom in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was their way or the highway. You had to be a member of the Puritan church to participate in the government. Quakers were not allowed in the colony, and they would hang you if you caused a ruckus or if you started preaching your ideas and it disagreed with them. For example, in 1651, Obadiah Holmes was whipped publicly for promoting Baptist teaching in the Massachusetts uh, colony. In uh, 1636, they, har they founded Harvard for the training of Puritan ministers. That school has come a long way. And uh, <laughs> in 1631, just a little bit before that, Roger Williams had arrived in the, uh, in the colonies in Massachusetts, and he was offered to pastor a church there. He was a very strong Puritan, uh, probably stricter than most of the people in the, the colony, and he turned it down, and he rejected the state support for the church, and he wanted religious toleration, which he called soul liberty. That's Roger Williams. And uh, he said a couple of inflammatory things, such as, the natives are true owners. So the Native Americans are the true owners of the land. You can't just take it. You have to negotiate with them. You have to pay them. You have to ask for permission. And they thought that was ridiculous. And uh, he said that christening makes not Christians. So you can baptize somebody, but that's not going to make them a Christian. It's, it's a matter of the heart. And so in 1636... He got kicked out, he was banished from Massachusetts, and he uh, was helped by the Indians. He would have probably starved to death in the winter. And then he purchased Providence from them and founded Rhode Island, which the Massachusetts snobs called the latrine of New England. That's where you flush all your undesirable people, they end up down in Rhode Island, because Roger Williams is tolerant. So you've got all kinds of different oddballs collecting together in that area. Whereas in Massachusetts, you have to be a Puritan, you have to do it this way, and otherwise we're going to persecute you. And one last thing on Roger Williams. 1639, he ended up founding the first Baptist church 
in the United States in Rhode Island. Okay, 1639. Then we have William Penn founded Pennsylvania, uh, named after his father, another Penn. And Sylvania means a forest. The uh, king, I think the king of England it was, owed his father a large debt, which he inherited. And uh, since he figured the king was probably never going to pay him, he said, well, just give me land in the New World. And so he was granted uh, Pennsylvania. And he was a Quaker who tolerated all monotheists. Uh, so if William Penn had gone to the Massachusetts colony, they would have hung him. Um, he would have been welcome in uh, maybe some of the other southern colonies, but even in Roger Williams, Rhode Island, he was not welcome because Roger Williams tolerated everyone but Quakers because Quakers were pacifists and he didn't want people thinking about the idea of pacifism. He thought that would be really bad in case there was a conflict. And so William Penn founded Pennsylvania as a Quaker and he tolerated all monotheists and many people outside of England moved to Pennsylvania. So non-English speaking people, a lot of them come to Pennsylvania, including Moravians, Lutherans, German Reformed, and of course the Amish, who speak a form of German. All right, I want to cover also some immorality. Uh, I, I want to recognize on the one hand that these people are all Christians. They're all, they would all self-identify as Christians. You know, we're not talking about a bunch of non-believers or a bunch of atheists here. But I also want to recognize that at the same time as saying they, they were Christians, that they did some things very badly. And uh, so one, I, I just want to mention a few of these things. The first up is tobacco. Uh, Columbus had brought tobacco back to Spain, where smoking soon became popular. Did you know that Columbus brought the, the smoking to the Europeans? In 1602, an English doctor wrote, Chimney sweepers or a warning for tobacconists. Warning about health risks of tobacco. So as early as 1602, they knew it was a health risk. And guess who King James himself, of the King James Version of the Bible, wrote a tract against smoking. And he said it was loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, and dangerous to the lungs. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's 1604. And so he pointed out how it was highly addictive. In those days, the matches weren't invented until the early 1800s. So if you were a smoker, and you had to smoke in a pipe at that time, you had to stop on a trip and go into, knock on somebody's door and ask them for a live coal to light your pipe, you know, because you're jonesing for another fix of nicotine. You know, and, and so King James is pointing these things out. And um, also, it was extraordinarily expensive in those early years. Uh, people spending between three and four hundred pounds a year, which is in modern equivalent forty-five thousand to sixty thousand dollars a year on uh, tobacco. Uh, as Virginia, especially, exported more and more tobacco, got cheaper and cheaper. In 1617, Virginia exported ten tons of tobacco to uh, Europe. In 1622, they exported thirty tons. In 1627, it was now up to two hundred and fifty tons. In 1639, we're up to 1,500 tons. By 1688, the colonies are exporting 14,000 tons. And not to be outdone, in 1771, we're up to 52,000 tons of tobacco exported from America every year to Europe. And they would also take land from the natives. And it was in Virginia where they discovered that slaves would be really good farmers for uh, the tobacco export. And then we move to rum. Rum, uh, people, people find it fu funny that the Puritans 
had so many distilleries and drank rum. But the Puritans, you know, they're, they're Puritan, they're, they're against sinning, but they're not against alcohol. You know what I mean? So they would drink rum in moderation, but they're not, they're not going to get drunk with it. So it was actually Puritans who started the distilleries for rum in America. And in 1667, the first distillery was in Boston. By 1774, Massachusetts had 63 of these, and they were producing 2.7 million gallons of rum a year. Rhode Island had more than 30 distilleries, so many for such a small place. And colonists uh, preferred rum made in the West Indies, which is a higher quality. So the rum they made in the colonies, they sold in Africa, and they sold it to the Native Americans. Which brings us to the Golden Triangle. This is where they get molasses from the West Indies in, into New England, and they turn it into rum. Then they bring that rum over to Africa and trade it for slaves. And then they bring the slaves to the West Indies to work on the plantations to handle the sugar cane and tobacco and other uh, cash crops for molasses. So this is what they call the, the Golden Triangle. Which brings us to slavery. In 1619, the first Africans came to Virginia as indentured servants, which is somebody that is going to work to pay off their debt for travel. It's not a slave. Uh, but by 1680, we have racial slavery in America. And it was just a, a, a horribly inhumane practice. And I have a description here. It's a, a shocking description, but I, I think we should read it. So that's why I put it here, I guess. It says, this is uh, by a gentleman who was on the, um, the slave trader ships, Dr. Falconridge. He says, the hardships and inconveniences suffered by the Negroes during the passage are scarcely to be enumerated or conceived. They are far more violently affected by seasickness than the Europeans. It frequently terminates in death, especially among the women. This is talking about these big boats that would carry the uh, Africans all the way from Africa to the Caribbean islands or to uh, the plantations in the colonies. The exclusion of fresh air is among the most intolerable. Most ships have portholes for air, but whenever the sea is rough and the rain heavy, it becomes necessary to shut these and every other conveyance by which air is admitted. The fresh air being thus excluded, the Negro's quarters very soon grow intolerably hot. The confined air rendered noxious by the smell exhaled from their bodies and by being repeatedly breathed soon produces fevers and diarrhea, which generally cause death to great numbers of them. And I skipped that apart, but he says, My profession requiring it, I frequently went down among them, till at length their compartments became so extremely hot as to be only sufferable for a very short time. But the excessive heat was not the only thing that rendered their situation intolerable. The deck, that is the floor of their quarters, was so covered with blood and excrement, which had proceeded from them in consequence of the diarrhea, that it resembled a slaughterhouse. It is not in the power of the human imagination to picture a situation more dreadful or more disgusting. And so at the same time that they're setting up churches and setting up communities, you have this horrible slave trade going on. And I, I'm not an expert on this, but you know, some people were aware of it, some people were not aware of it. Some people, and, and it's just like the experience of slavery. Some people who had slaves treated them like members of the family. And then some people who had slaves treated them like animals and were vicious and brutal to them. 
but that all happens at the same time in the same country, in different places in the country. The treatment of the natives that were living here was also very bad. The, I, I, I spoke to a Wampanoag woman about this from Rhode Island who was a descendant of Massasoit. Massasoit's the guy from Thanksgiving, which actually happened, where the uh, Europeans came here and they uh, didn't have enough food and the Indians came and they helped them and it was the first Thanksgiving. That's, so far as I can tell, all true. But anyhow, Massasoit was the chief that helped them originally. And uh, anyhow, she's a descendant from, from this guy. And she said that the Indians had no concept of land ownership. They believed the land owned them. And they had no understanding of how a piece of paper, how is a piece of paper going to give you land? How does that work? How does, how does this piece of paper, this deed, represent land? You know, it just didn't make any sense to them. So they're, they, they were tricked into signing away a lot. Alcoholism, they had no cultural understanding of alcohol and alcoholism became an uh, immediate problem. Benjamin Franklin talks about in his autobiography the behavior of uh, the Native Americans when they uh, were drinking the, the rum and there were so many brutal massacres. Again, I don't want to get into all the details on it, but I just wanted to mention there was a lot of this immorality. Uh, also, the 1692, the Salem Witch Trials in which 150 people were arrested uh, and only 19 were hung on the charge of witchcraft. Uh, this is all going to lead into something happy in just a few minutes. So uh, we are going to have an upswing here. It's called the Great Awakening, the Revival Preaching. But before we get to that, I want to talk about John Wesley. John Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791, which is a very long time for anyone today or in his day. He grew up Anglican, he went to Oxford, and he started the Holy Club because he wanted to, to worship God. He wanted to live out Christianity. He wanted to take it seriously. So he started the holy clubs. He became a priest, and he was frustrated at the fatalist attitude that people had. People were saying, well, I'm predestined to be saved. So it doesn't matter what I do, God's going to save me. Or they were saying, I'm predestined to be damned. So no matter how good I am, I'm still damned. So why should I try? Either way, people are saying, why should I try? And it just drove John Wesley crazy. And so he starts preaching against that. And he picks up the uh, beliefs of Jacobus Arminius, the uh, Arminian idea of free will as opposed to Calvin's idea of predestination. And so Wesley travels around and preaches all throughout England. In 1736, he comes to... Uh, the place that he thinks is most in need of saving, Georgia, because it had been a prison colony and a lot of undesirables from England had been sent there and there was a lot of access to the Native Americans. And so John Wesley gets in his head, I'm going to go to Georgia and save the um, people who have never heard the gospel before, the, especially the Native Americans. He's on his way there on a boat and a storm strikes. People freak out. Everybody's screaming, except for this one group of people, the Moravians, who are calmly singing through the Psalms during the storm. And Wesley says, if I'm a Christian and I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off with everyone else, who are these people? What, who, I, they make me look like I'm not even a Christian at all. And so he starts to question his, his conversion. After two years of fruitless preaching in America, in Georgia, he returns to England 
having very little to no success. In 1738, he wanders into a reading of Christian brethren who are uh, reading out Luther's preface to Romans, the epistle to the Romans. And uh, here is a quote of what he says happened in his heart during that reading. He said, about a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me. And so John Wesley had this amazing conversion experience. And this experience aspect becomes very important for Methodists, who uh, are the followers of John Wesley, uh, who eventually give birth to the Pentecostals, who are very experience-driven people as well. And so John Wesley encouraged people to seek God through intense scripture med meditation, through fasting, through frequent practicing of or taking part of the Lord's Supper. He's an outdoor revival preacher throughout England. Now, he's Church of England. He's an Anglican. But he's doing things that Anglicans aren't supposed to do, like going outside and preaching to coal miners and traveling all throughout the country on horseback, trying to, to preach to people to have this conversion experience even though they were already born Christians. If you're in the Church of England, you're born into the Church of England. And so he's preaching conversion. What is this? And so he has a lot of friction with the uh, Church of England clergy. His methodical approach to Christianity got him the name Methodists, or his people, the name Methodists, of which there are 75 million today, just as many as there are Lutherans and Reformed. He strongly opposed slavery and the revolution of the colonialists. Distinctive beliefs include free will, an Arminian belief, um, and he has what's called a quadrilateral for sources of doctrine. And so his, his sources for doctrine are scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. So he's, he says that's how you figure out what you're supposed to believe. You use scripture, you look at tradition, you look at experience, and you look at reason. Charles Wesley is the brother of John Wesley, who lived from 1707 to 1788. He was very close to John, and he also was an Anglican priest who strongly opposed the breach with the Church of England. He wanted to stay in the Church of England his whole life. He wanted John Wesley to stay in the Church of England. And all the, the groups, he, they would set up these study groups where people would, who were taking Christianity seriously would encourage each other and meditate on Scripture together and, and talk about how it was affecting their lives. And this is what ended up becoming the Methodist denomination. Char, uh, Charles was against that forming. He wanted to stay in the Church of England. Eventually it did break away. And he's a very famous hymn writer. If you, uh, have you ever, ever seen a hymnal, uh, a lot of Charles Wesley songs are in there. Another man associated with John Wesley and the Methodists was this cross-eyed preacher from Oxford. He was originally a servant in Oxford named George Whitfield. Lived from 1714 to 1770. He was an Anglican priest as well and a Methodist, a very close colleague of John Wesley who actually disagreed with John Wesley about predestination. He did believe in Calvinism. George Whitfield did. And he ended up coming to America in the 1740s for a preaching tour of the colonies. And he preached to enormous audiences. Benjamin Franklin estimated, based on his mathematical calculations, that George Whitfield preached to 30,000 people in Boston Commons. 
We don't have amplification or electricity yet. 30,000 people. He was a barrel-chested preacher who could project outside. Really a remarkable man. By the time he was done preaching through the colonies, 8 out of 10 people had heard him preaching. Traveled, traveled, traveled all throughout the colonies. He preached extemporaneously in plain language. What a new, random new idea, huh? And he, he used gestures. You know, he would really get into it when he was preaching. Very unlike my current presentation, but it's, it's a different, <laughs> different situation. He appealed to emotion. Emotion was very important to George Whitfield because people made decisions based on emotion. So this is a quotation from Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography about George Whitfield. Give you an impression. <clears throat> now Benjamin Franklin is not somebody to be impressed. Okay, he 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 knows what's going on. He's highly educated, and somebody making an emotional appeal is not going to impress him. But this is what Benjamin Franklin says. He says, "In 1739, arrived among us from England the Reverend Mr. Whitfield, who had made himself remarkable there as an itinerant preacher in England." He was at first permitted to preach in some of our churches, but the clergy taking a dislike to him soon refused him their pulpits, and he was obliged to preach in the fields. The multitudes of all sects and denominations that attended his sermons were enormous, and it was a matter of speculation to me who was one of the number to observe the extraordinary influence of his oratory on his hearers and how much they admired and respected him, notwithstanding his common abuse of them by assuring them that they were naturally half beasts and half devils. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. I happened soon after to attend one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with a collection. I silently resolved he should get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistoles, which is a Spanish gold coin. As he proceeded, I began to soften and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that and determined me to give the silver. He finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. And so that's Benjamin Franklin talking about George Whitfield. And George Whitfield kicks off what we call, uh, or maybe doesn't kick it off, but he's instrumental in what we call the Great Awakening which happens from 1731 to 1755. You know, these dates are approximate. But that's George Whitfield. Another aspect or major important person for the Great Awakening is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he lived from 1703 to 1758, and he was a very intelligent, reformed theologian. He was familiar with the ideas of the Enlightenment. He liked to read John Locke in particular. He graduated from the uh, brand new college that they had called Yale because they believe Harvard had gotten too decadent so they founded Yale and he was uh, a strong proponent even though he was a very very intellectual person he was a strong proponent of emotions when it came to conversion because he recognized the role that the heart plays and so I have a an extensive quote for you, one of his sermons, this is his most famous sermon, it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now keep in mind that Jonathan Edwards is very nearsighted, 
He's a manuscript preacher, which means he reads everything word for word, which is why we have it. And he had a high-pitched kind of squealy voice. And so he's kind of reading it like this. But when he's reading this sermon, people interrupt an unheard of practice in his group, calling out, what must I do to be saved? And falling on the floor practically during the sermon. Okay, so this is, this, these are, this is just an excerpt from it. I, there's a whole lead-in before this that I cut out and some stuff after it. You know, we don't have all day, but this is what he says. The God that holds you over, he's talking to the person as like a sinner that God's holding over the pit of hell. Okay, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about and ready at every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Then I skipped the whole middle part. This is the last lines of it. Therefore, let every one that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let every one fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. Whew, that's preaching. That's preaching, huh? Holy cow. So that's, that's the great awakening. I mean, can you imagine... Uh, the response to this. In 1734 and 35, there was a huge revival in Northampton. He was a preacher in Connecticut. I don't know if I mentioned that. It's where Yale is. Large numbers of people experienced emotional conversion. And this whole movement then is what George Whitfield steps into as he preaches up and down the colonies. Um, in 1758, Jonathan Edwards became the president of Princeton University. The results of the Great Awakening. In 1764, the Baptists grew so much in the area of Rhode Island that they founded Brown University as a consequence of this revival preaching in the Great Awakening, another school that has come a long way. 
there was actually a split among the Puritans about the Great Awakening. You have the ones that are called the New Lights who support this sort of emotional appeal. And then you have the old Calvinists who criticize this emotionalism and want that rational, logical, non-exciting approach. Also, the abolitionist movement against slavery starts during this time, including from students of Jonathan Edwards. And this movement continues into the 1750s. But something began to happen in the 1750s and the 1760s that ended up uh, erupting into what we call the American Revolution. And so most churches ended up endorsing the revolt against England, and they stopped preaching revival sermons in order to endorse the revolution. They would use Israel's battle text to justify fighting the British, where America was seen as a new Israel and Britain was seen as some oppressor. I don't know exactly what they would call Britain. But um, the cause of America is the cause of Christ would be one of their slogans. Uh, for example, John Witherspoon lived from 1723 to 1794, was a Scottish Presbyterian minister. He preached for resisting tyranny, and he also signed, as a preacher, he signed the Declaration of Independence. It's a political issue, the revolution, the American Revolution, but there's no way to separate what you believe about God and the world from what you believe about your politics, right? And so uh, the preachers are very much involved on either side of this controversy of the day. Many of them saying it's a good, just war to fight, and many of them saying it is not a proper war. You should not rebel against the king on both sides of it. Of course, there are more on the side of revolting than not, but uh, the ministers definitely did participate to a large degree. The Christians who were opposed to the revolt were the Anglicans, why do you think the Anglicans would be against it? The head of the Anglican church is the king. Ever since Henry VIII, the king is the head of the church. And so just because they're in America, so you can see how difficult it would be to be a, a Church of England, an, an Anglican person in America. You're supposed to be allegiant to the king, but at the same time, he's the head of your church. You know? And so they were against the war. Um, and who else? The Methodists were against it. John Wesley actually wrote a whole uh, book against it. Uh, Quakers are pacifists. They're against it. And the Mennonites are pacifists. They're against it. The Patriots uh, sometimes ended up tarring and feathering these people. And many of them lost their property in this time. And you guys know the story. America is successful in repelling England, establishing the Constitution. Uh, in 1785... Remember when I, when I started, I said in Plymouth and then also in Massachusetts, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, there was not freedom of religion? Well, there is today, right? So how did that happen? Well, what happened was after the Revolutionary War, laws get made that enable people to have freedom of religion. Okay? And so in 1785, the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom happens. And then in 1787, the Constitution says it provides no religious test for a federal office. Now, in, in, in Massachusetts and in, in uh, some of these other places, there would be a religious test. You had to prove that you were a legitimate Puritan to be in office. And so, in the Constitution, that is, that is not there. And then in 1791, the real big thing is the Bill of Rights, which is the First Amendment, which says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion 
or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so this originally is only applied to the federal government, which is brand new. You had uh, colony governments, what we would call state governments, which were very important and had ruled things for a long time. Now you have this new federal government. And the new federal government has made a law that says we're not going to have any established, no law respecting an establishment of religion. However, the states already have establishment laws. Okay, so for example, it's not until 1833 that Massachusetts disestablishes the Puritan church as the official state church. But from the time of the Bill of Rights, you see that this is the direction it's going in. It's, it's, it's going to be a freedom of religion, whether you're... Everyone's Christian. So it's not like we're talking about atheists and Muslims here. We're talking about Catholics, Anglicans, Puritans, Quakers. You know what I mean? And so the idea is that you have all of these different colonies. You have different beliefs in these different groups. And so how are we going to be a federal... How are we going to have a, a government? How are we going to have a United States unless we can have a government that functions not based on any one of these, something that includes all of them. And so that's what ends up happening. We end up with the separation of church and state, which is uh, what we call it today. This is a phrase that doesn't actually appear in the Constitution, separation of church and state, but it's an idea that John Locke had gotten from going way back to the Polish brethren, the Polish Sicinians who were Anabaptists, and who were kicked out of Poland, if you recall, from in 1658 by King Casimir. Uh, and then they went over to Amsterdam and published their book, The Library of the Polish Brethren, which John Locke read and decided that we need, to, we need to have religious toleration people. That's what we need to have. And so you have James Madison, you have Thomas Jefferson, you have these framers of the Constitution reading John Locke. And so they're getting this idea that we need to have religious toleration and that that comes out when Thomas Jefferson writes a letter to the Danbury Baptists, which reads, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only, and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislator should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Now, in their times, that is to say the government is not going to control the church. In our times, it's used to talk about how no aspect of spirituality or Christianity can be allowed in the government. You know what I mean? So it, it, it's, it's the same idea, but sort of looked at from the other side that we hear about it today. But the idea was to have a United States and to have a place where people could participate in the government from all different religious Christian denominations. James Madison famously once said, we are teaching the world that religion flourishes in greater purity without government. And so the idea was not, and I'm going to talk about this movement called deism. I'm going to talk about that next week. Deism is the idea that God started the universe, but that he's not involved in it at all. Okay, And that the Bible is not true and that the miracles are not real, real or anything like that. And a couple of these guys did have deist beliefs. I don't know if I'm not saying that about James Madison necessarily. I know Thomas Jefferson did and, and at least one others. But 
they're all theists, okay? So they all believe in God, in other words. It's an idea that in France, you had one king, one religion, one law. In, in Germany, in Austria, it was whatever, the, whatever province, whatever the ruler of that province was, was the religion of that area, okay? We always have, since Constantine, religion and government mixed together in the sense that the government tells you what religion you have to believe and, and practice, okay? In, in the 1490s, Spain kicks all the Jews out. The government kicks all the Jews out, you know what I mean? Because it's, they're, they're meddling in religion. And so the idea of these American thinkers is let's not control religion and see if it doesn't flourish under these conditions. Whereas the old model was, well, only if the government supports it is it going to work. How are people going to support the church unless they pay taxes by coercion of the government and then the, the government pays for the churches. Well, what we see in America is voluntary offerings given to churches, and the result is lots of churches and lots of people thriving throughout America. So that's the story of the Colonials and the Methodists. Uh, next week we'll uh, move on to the, the, next, the next part. And uh, in, in particular, one of the things I want to talk about is how a lot of these universities and denominations ended up becoming so liberal that they are today, okay? A lot of denominations split because of differences of uh, opinion on the Civil War, but also differences of opinion on whether or not the Bible is authoritative or uh, if they accept some of the critical ideas that were coming out. So I'm going to be talking about that next week, so stay tuned for that. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll hear about the Enlightenment and the attack on the Bible and on Christianity and find out why, in so many places, secularism has taken such a strong root. Uh, but for today, I just wanted to read out a quick note from Arthur Sinus. He says on Offscript 39, Sexual Harassment, A Christian Response, he says, the variety of topics on this website, the easy listening and the biblical and uncompromising standards are addictive and truly edifying in the pursuit of following Christ. This topic, sexual harassment, is very prevalent in every facet of life. My current workplace is brutal in stamping out any of this behavior as a longstanding work colleague found out swiftly. It definitely sets filters in place. Ignorance is a yesterday excuse. Many blessings, prayer for this ministry, and appreciation, Arthur Sinus. Thank you so much, Arthur, for listening and for writing in and sharing a little bit about your own workplace experience and what you're observing with respect to sexual harassment. If any of you haven't yet listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. We had uh, not only Dan Fitzsimmons and Rose Ryder, but also Terry Crowder in on the panel uh, just to give another perspective, and that's Offscript episode 39 on uh, sexual harassment, a Christian response. Uh, furthermore, working on another uh, episode, hopefully, hopefully out this Sunday, on a number of criticisms of Christianity and working through those and giving good responses to them. Well, at least I hope they're good. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Thanks so much for tuning in. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.